Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 is where we are going to spend our time this morning. And by way of introduction this morning, I I just want to recap where we've been in the book of Jonah since we haven't been there for about a month now. Uh, We began in chapter 1 by seeing God's clear decree that God made a decree that had zero ambiguity to it. Go to Nineveh and preach what I am commanding you to preach. And then we saw Jonah's calculated defiance, that he went the exact opposite direction. We dialogued a little bit about why we thought that was. We gave a number of reasons. Maybe he was afraid, possibly. He, we know that he hated the Assyrians because of their ethnicity. They weren't Jewish. Uh, he hated them because they were so wicked. Maybe he doesn't want to see Assyria conquer Israel, and so if they are killed by God, they can't conquer Israel. Um, He didn't want to be a part of God's saving plan. He doesn't really see sin the same way that God sees sin. Uh, He ultimately doesn't love grace and doesn't glory in it, but explicitly, the explicit reason that we'll see in chapter 4 is that Jonah knows that God is going to show Nineveh mercy, and he does not think Nineveh is worthy of the mercy that God desires to show them. You remember, he uses, God uses the same words about Nineveh that he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He says, that great, wicked city. And so by the sheer fact that Jonah hears those words and says, that God says to Jonah, get up and go to that great, wicked city. Their wickedness has come up to me. It's risen before me. I see their wickedness. By the sheer fact that God is sending a messenger to Nineveh to share the message of judgment, Jonah knows God didn't do that with Sodom and Gomorrah. God didn't say to Abraham, hey, go and send them the message. God just said, they're a wicked city. They're going to be destroyed. Jonah knows that since God is sending Jonah to Nineveh, there is a chance they would repent, and he doesn't want to see that. So he goes the opposite way. He defies God. Then we saw Jonah's sin and the consequences of Jonah's sin. We saw the consequences of his sin and the consequences of ours. We saw that it makes us senseless. It makes us do foolish things. We saw that it brings about sovereign storms. Every time that we are involved in sin, it brings about God's sovereign storms to bring us back to him, to discipline us, to correct us, to bring us back to him. We saw that our sin always affects others, even our quote-unquote private sin. It always affects other people. It affects the people that are in the boat with Jonah. And then we saw that sinners can be saved if they would trust in Christ. Then we looked at the sailors. We focused on the sailors for a Sunday. And we saw three realities of conversion that come from the sailors' example. The sailors had to turn from their own self-effort. Remember, they're trying to row at the oars. They say, what do we do with you? He says, throw me over. They say, no, we have our own way of bringing about salvation. But they had to let their oars go. They had to put their oars down. And then they had to trust in God's provision for a substitute. God provided a substitute to die in their place. They have to trust in God's provision. And then once they are saved from the storm, they tell their faith to the world. They they explain and proclaim to everybody that they trust in Yahweh, the one true God. And that's really where chapter 1 ends in verse 16. The men fear the Lord, they offer sacrifice to the Lord, and they make vows before the Lord. Verse 17, actually in the Hebrew Bible, it is in chapter 2. So chapter 2 starts with verse 17. Chapter 2 is all about Jonah being stuck in the belly of this fish. He was in there for three days. We actually left him there for four weeks. So it's time to visit him in the deepest darkness, in the most disgusting place imaginable. I mean, we've heard this story before. 
But imagine with me being stuck in a fish's stomach, complete darkness, the stench. Uh, If you are in any way claustrophobic, this is going to be a nightmare for you. And he's going to cry out to God. He's going to pray before his God. And we get to eavesdrop on his prayer. You learn so much about somebody when you get to listen to their prayers. I don't know if you've been in places where you've you've been in maybe a prayer meeting or you've been with somebody and they pray with you and you almost feel like I need to stay away from this person because they are so holy in what they're praying. I'm on holy ground with them that if I'm close to them, God's just going to smite me down because of my sin. There's these, these prayers that you hear people pray that you just sometimes, I know that you're supposed to close your eyes. It doesn't say it in the Bible, but you're supposed to close your eyes when you pray, right? Sometimes I just open my, prayer, my eyes and I'm just looking at the person praying like, where is this coming from? This is amazing. You just feel like you, you shouldn't be there. This is a private conversation between that person and God, and you have no business being there. I don't know if you've been in these moments where there's such intimacy. You learn so much about somebody by watching them pray, by listening to them pray. And we get to do that this morning. So let's listen to Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, and then we will see God's grace made evident in this prayer. Jonah chapter 2, we'll start in chapter 1, verse 17, and read all the way through chapter 2. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All of your breakers and your billows or your waves have passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Father, we thank you for your word That is so profound, and though it's written thousands of years ago, it perfectly applies with absolute perfection and relevance to our lives today. Father, I pray that you would teach us, grow an awareness in our hearts for what your grace looks like, for how to appropriate it in our own lives, how how to receive it. God, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. May your Holy Spirit be pleased to show us your grace, your goodness, your kindness, and even show us our own sinfulness. God, we need to see it. We need to see how foolish we become when we act exactly like Jonah. We are all Jonah. 
Help us now to see Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Jonah chapter 2, his prayer. What do you make of his prayer? What does it include that maybe you're surprised about? Or maybe you're surprised that it doesn't include certain things that you think should be there. What do you make of his prayer? His prayer has layers to it. The layers depict God's grace transforming the heart of Jonah. And so we're going to take that really as our outline this morning. We're going to see three main ways that God's grace is evident in this text. Three ways that God's grace works in our hearts. Three aspects of God's amazing grace that we see in this prayer. And the first is this. We see the grace of Jonah's distress. Number one, we see the grace of Jonah's distress. This is in chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. There is grace in the distress that Jonah is going through. So chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah lives in that fish for three days and three nights. Now, right off the bat, we have to answer two questions. Let's ask them, let's answer them. Number one, did this actually happen? Is this a fairy tale? Is this a fable? Did this actually happen? There are many people that believe that this didn't happen in a miraculous way, but it did happen. So here are some explanations that they give for how this makes sense. They don't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and survived in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, but they believe, quote-unquote, the Bible, so they say we have to find a way that this makes sense. Here's a couple examples. Some people that think that Jonah landed on a fish, used it as a flotation device for three days and three nights until he was washed up on shore at Nineveh. It's not what the text says, and frankly, I think that that's not any easier to believe. Like somehow he ropes a fish and grabs onto it and follows this fish all the way. Like that's not any easier or less supernatural to believe. Some people think that Jonah was at the precipice of death. He was washed up on shore and somebody found him and took him to an inn and the inn's name happened to be the fish. So he was alive in the inn called the fish for three days and three nights. Some people go the scientific route. There was a man named James Bartley in the late 1800s that was a crew member of a ship called the Star of the East. He was thrown overboard. He was killed. Uh, there was a sperm whale that they were chasing. They killed the sperm whale. The next day, they cut open the sperm whale, and they found the whale's stomach moving, and they opened it up, and out pops James Bartley. He says he remembers being swallowed. He remembers going down into complete darkness. He remembers arriving in the stomach where there was so much intense heat that he passed out. But then he came to when a knife was going through the belly of this whale and he was brought out. And the only lasting effect that he claims to have was that the acid in the stomach bleached his skin so white that it looked like parchment for the rest of his life. I don't know if I believe that. Uh, there are a lot of people that say that he made that up, including his wife. I don't know if I believe it. Some people get really excited about this fish. And they just make this a hill to die on. They want to know, what is this fish all about? Some people doubt it completely and throw it away. And I think we would do well to land right in the middle. This book is not about a fish. And we don't doubt that it actually happened. Uh, I, I think there is really no need to defend it. I feel that there's no need to defend it, that this actually happened. Because frankly, I believe way more preposterous things in the Bible than this. Right? If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's a very easy thing for a man to be swallowed alive by a fish for three days and three nights. Second question, 
and ultimately, Jesus believed that this account actually happened, right? Matthew chapter 12, he says this account happened, so I take Jesus' word for it. Second question is, is this a fish or a whale? Some people ask me this question, so I figured we'd go to it right off the bat. Is this a fish or a whale? Septuagint says whale. Greek, New Testament, or Greek translation of the Old Testament says whale. Hebrew says fish, which if you want to know the Hebrew word for fish, it's dog. So if you want uh, to call a fish, just say dog, and dog means fish in Hebrew. Uh, I don't know what that means that our dogs are. I guess they are fish-like in the way that they exist. I don't know. The bottom line is we don't know if this was a fish or a whale. We have no real idea. Chapter 2, in Jonah's prayer, he's going to tell us that he sunk down to the bottom of the ocean, which is usually not where whales live, so that's why most people say it's probably a fish, but then they think there's no way a fish could swallow a man. It had to have been like a huge sperm whale or something like that. We don't know. We do know it was appointed for a very specific purpose that God gave. It was a purpose, not a porpoise. Um, but we know that this isn't about a fish, right? This ultimately, this story, remember this story is not about a fish. It's about God. Yahweh, the name Yahweh, the personal covenant-keeping name of Yahweh is used 25 times in this book. God as a title is used 113, or, uh, used 13 times in this book. The Lord God, the phrase Lord God is used once. There are 39 references to God in this book, and this book only has 44 verses. The fish isn't the main character. God is the main character. And so God says, I'm going to appoint a great fish. Maybe he makes this fish for this specific purpose. Maybe he appoints it, uh, it's already existing fish, and he brings it along. Who knows? But he appoints it. Notice that word in verse 17, the Lord appointed. It's to elect or ordain something to happen. This should immediately cause us to worship. The Lord just says, fish, come. Fish, go. Fish, swallow. You have never appointed a fish in your life. And neither have I, by the way. All you have to do is ask our brother Tim and our brother Jeff, who have seen me fishing. You know I have never appointed a fish in my life. I have tried with my fly fishing cast, but I cannot say, get on that line already. I don't appoint fish. You don't either. This should bring us to a place of awe and worship. Again, we've read the story so many times that we just hear, yeah, God's bringing about a fish. No, this is worshipful, awesome uh, details and accounts. This fish is a redemptive submarine for Jonah. And here is where we begin with Jonah in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights to see the grace of of Jonah's distress, that God is bringing grace in the midst of this distressful situation. Notice how Jonah starts. He prays to the Lord, chapter 1, from the stomach of the fish, and he says in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, I called out of my distress to the Lord. This is how he begins. I called out in my distress. Now, we don't know how he's qualifying his distress, but he's saying I'm in a distressful situation. We should instantly see and notice something about this somewhat euphemistic prayer. Yes, he's in distress, but he doesn't qualify it. Who, who brought about this distress? Whose fault is it that he's stuck in the belly of a fish? It's not the, soul, the sailor's fault. It's not God's ultimate fault. It's his fault, Jonah's fault, for doing what he did in sin. I think that, if, if we're honest, we've all done this before, right? We've all prayed prayers before where we say, God, why did you let such bad things happen to me? When if we would just stop in the middle of our distress, we'd realize God didn't have to do anything to bring about the bad things that are going on in my life. 
I made this mess happen, not God. These kinds of prayers move us away from taking responsibility. God, I'm in such distress. Or maybe you look back, that time period in my life was so awful. Look at how distressful that was. That was terrible. God, why did you allow me to go through that? If you're praying that prayer and it's your sin that brought you into that season, then it's really your fault. And instead of taking responsibility, you're throwing it away. And it will lock you. This kind of a prayer will lock you into spiritual paralysis. And here's the reason why. You can't repent of what you haven't confessed, and you can't confess what you're not grieving, and you can't grieve what you can't see. So if you want to repent, you have to see something that you need to grieve over, and in grieving, you'll confess it as sin, and in confessing as sin, you'll repent. But if you don't understand, if you can't see your sin for what it is, you're not going to repent. You'll just instead say, my life stinks, my circumstances are awful, and I'm in distress. God, why? Now, I don't think Jonah's all the way there because of the rest of his prayer, but he begins the prayer that way. He begins the prayer that way. And yet God brings grace through this moment. God brings grace in the distress. Because, number one, God answers him. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, from the lowest place you can go. Sheol's really the the land of the dead, if you will. It's so low, you're dead, and yet God still heard me. You heard my voice. Jonah's speaking here of God's omnipresence and his omniscience. He knows all, and he's everywhere. Remember those commercials, I believe they were Verizon commercials with that guy with the glasses that would walk, uh, walk around and say, can you hear me now? You remember those? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Jonah's in the belly of a fish saying, God, can you hear me now? And God says, yes, I hear you. There's no dead zone with God, right? No matter where you are in the most unusual of places in the world, no matter how bad your circumstances are, no matter how wicked or sinful you've been, you can cry out to God. You can even make your bed in Sheol, like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, and yet you're still there. God is ultimately, as Jonah's going to say, the allower and the author of the distress that Jonah's going through. You, verse 3, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and you, the current engulfed me and all of your breakers and your billows passed over me. So Jonah put himself into this predicament. And yet God sovereignly is allowing this. God brought the storm uh, to discipline Jonah, to direct Jonah. Then Jonah says, throw me overboard. I would rather die than obey God. Just kill me now. And yet God doesn't let him die. And I think this is one of the biggest aspects that stood out to me about this prayer. Jonah may be thinking that what he's going through is punishment for his sin. When in fact... It's grace. It's not punishment. Only in the rearview mirror can we see that even the the most difficult of circumstances in our lives were brought about by God's gracious hand, not as punishment, though they may seem that way. The storm might seem like punishment. It's discipline, but it's not punishment. It's correction, but it's not punishment. The fish might seem like punishment. I have to stay here for three days and three nights. No, it's actually salvation because you're not dying in the sea. God was not judging Jonah by swallowing him in this fish. God was saving Jonah. So can I just ask you, do you see your own distressful situations that way? 
First, do you own that your sin brought it about? But then secondly, in the mess of what's going on, do you say this is God's grace? Or do you say, God, you're absent. You're not letting anything happen. You're not bringing about goodness in my life. You're bringing about sorrow and suffering. God has such a gracious, gracious way of going after his people, but usually not the way that we would want him to go after us, right? Often through suffering, rarely through prosperity, does God grip his people's heart. This is in Ecclesiastes 2. You can write it down and look it up on your own time. But Ecclesiastes 2 makes this point where Solomon says that prosperity actually harms our understanding of relying upon God. Suffering knocks out everything, every support underneath us to make us see that God is all we have and he is all that we need. I know that we tend to think, if you're anything like me, we tend to think the opposite. God just strike me with the curse of winning the lottery and I'll learn to rely upon you in the midst of that prosperity, right? But God says, that's, that's not how you're going to learn best. The school of learning to rely upon God is a hard one of suffering, but it's always grace. Johnny Arison Tata, in her autobiography, um, quadriplegic, been in a wheelchair for decades now, loves the Lord, amazing testimony. She says this, quote, I don't really mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring him glory. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues that you've been avoiding. Today, as I look back, I'm convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by the grace of of God. What we would look at and say she's in distress, which was not brought about by any sin on her part. She would look at it and say this distress is actually God's grace. It's God's grace. I don't know how many of you have tried uh, training a dog before or maybe even just in owning a dog. Uh, you you know there's something called a choke collar that you have to put Uh, on a dog to help understand, to guide, to lead it in such a way where it will know, don't go there, don't do that. Kind of pinches their neck a little bit. It doesn't hurt them at all, but it helps them know that's not where you should go. That's dangerous. Don't go there. God's grace is a choke collar on our lives. The moment that we're in danger, he pulls back on that collar. Why? Because he hates us? No. He knows that we're going in a dangerous direction, and though it might sting a little bit, though it might hurt a little bit, It's a a pulling back of grace and of love to say, don't go there. I love you too much. Distress is grace. By the way, grace is the very thing that Jonah doesn't want to be given to Nineveh. And it's very interesting because the question raised before us in this chapter is on what terms is God going to deal with Jonah? How is God going to deal with Jonah? Jonah believed if you do bad, then you're punished. That's why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he wants God to punish the Ninevites. So will God just deal with Jonah that way? You do bad, you are punished. You do bad, I destroy you. Jonah was calculated in his defiance, and yet God is chasing him down with grace. Jonah, not even at the end of the book, because he's still messed up by the end of this book. We finished the book, and he's still a mess. Jonah now, in heaven, Jonah is saying, oh, I am so thankful that God did not operate with me on my terms of how grace should work. Jonah doesn't want to operate with grace. Jonah doesn't want, I do bad, and yet God will still allow me to live and still chase after me. Jonah wants bad equals punishment done. God's not going to deal with him that way. With 2020 hindsight, we see that most 
some of the most important lessons that we've learned in life are a result of God's most severe mercies. The most distressing situations in our lives, sometimes brought about by our own sins, sometimes not, bring us to a place where we trust God like never before. God is the author of these things. God's the allower of these things. God's the ordainer of these things. That's why Jonah says, all of your breakers, your billows have passed over me. And again, though some people might instantly go to, well, then it's God's fault and I don't trust him. Jonah brings this about for the exact opposite reason. Because this is God's doing, I know I'm safe. God's sovereign over the trials. The Bible says this all over the place. And why does it say it all over the place? Because if you are in the belly of a fish, it's incredibly comforting to know that God controls that fish. You have to know he controls the fish or else you're out of control and you don't know what's happening. You you have immense hope when you know that God's behind all these things. So here Jonah is, I mean literally rock bottom, right? He has sunk all the way to the bottom of the ocean. He went down to Joppa in chapter 1, down into a ship in chapter 1, down into the depths of the sea at the beginning of chapter 2. And it's not until he's all the way down, finally at the bottom, at the lowest point, stripped of all of the buoyancy of his self-sufficiency, that deliverance is finally possible. It's only when you reach the bottom of your own self-sufficiency, when everything falls apart, all of your schemes don't work, that you realize Jesus is all I need because he's all I have. If Jonah is ever going to ascend, both in the water and in his faith towards God, he has to be brought to the end of himself. And so that's why I say this is a grace of God to bring about this distress, because it's only in this distress that Jonah is going to be saved. So what about you? Can I just ask you, are, are you in a season of being distressed? Or maybe you can look back on a season where you see there were moments in life that you were angry at God, that you didn't like what he was allowing to happen, that you say, God, why? Why didn't you stop me? Why did you allow these things to happen? Can I encourage you to listen to what Jonah's saying in these moments and say, wait a second, maybe some of that was brought about by my own sinfulness, and instead of this being punishment, this is actually, God, you being gracious with me in the distress that I'm going through to wake me up and to bring me closer to yourself. It's actually salvation. Do you see your distress as punishment or as grace? Don't resist God's grace. Turn today with a whole heart to him, the author of your distress. Second aspect of God's grace that we see in this prayer is in verses 4 through 7, and it's the grace of God's rescue. The grace of God's rescue. So we see the grace of Jonah's distress, and now we see the grace of God's rescue. Verses 4 through 7. So... Jonah says, because you are the one bringing these things about, I said, I'm expelled from your sight. There's no way that I can be saved. God is against me. God's hand is against me, and I'm dying. Now I do think there's some aspect of ownership of his own sin that he's saying, I'm expelled from your sight. I don't deserve to be in your sight anymore. Middle of verse 4, it's a very interesting verse. It's literally, how shall I then again look upon your holy temple? My Bible translates it as, nevertheless, I will, but there's a question inside of it. I know I'm going to because I am a covenant person of Yahweh. I'm in God's covenant family. You've promised you're not going to leave me or forsake me, but how is this going to happen because of my sin? I've sinned, so how am I going to be brought back to a reconciled relationship? Remember, we talked about holy temple in chapter 1, that this aspect of holy temple is, is Jonah's relationship with God. I'm a minister of God. I'm a prophet of God. I've been sent out by God with a message in my mouth, and I don't want to do it in chapter 1. So here he says, I'm stuck in the belly of the fish. I'm stuck. How am I going to be brought back to life? 
How am I going to be reconciled in a perfect relationship with the God that I've offended? How is that possible? Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains at the bottom of the sea, and the earth with its bars were around me forever. Again, we, we know the story, but just stop and think about this. We don't know when he was launched into the sea by the sailors. But no matter what time it was, let's say it's perfectly bright outside. I think, number one, with the storm, it's probably dark. But number two, he's gone so deep that there's no light going through. You can ask my son about this. He knows everything there is to know about the midnight zone of the ocean. So if you want to talk to him, he will tell you he loves uh, fish and loves uh, ocean life and aquatic animals. And he will tell you, just ask him. Somebody asked him today, hey, can you tell me about the midnight zone? And you, hopefully you have seven hours because he will talk your ear off. Midnight zone. It's midnight zone. It's called that because the sun, there's no sunlight that goes through. Have you ever held your breath so long that you thought you were going to die? Maybe you've held your breath long enough to know that you feel that burning sensation in your lungs. That's Jonah. He's feeling that. So number one, he's sinking into the midnight zone of the ocean. He's going so deep into this just enormity of water. Doesn't know what animals are around him. I don't know about you, but I'm surfing out in you know, the, the Pacific Ocean I can see people on the shore and my feet are dangling in the water and I'm terrified that a shark's going to come bite me. How much more so in utter darkness in the middle of the ocean? Who knows what's out there? Maybe he feels seaweed brush up against him. We know he gets entangled in it, but maybe he feels seaweed and he's terrified, but he can't really scream because he has no oxygen. He has no air in his lungs. And he just keeps sinking. What about this? What about the water pressure in his ears? can't even dive to the bottom of my mom's pool without feeling like I need to cry because my ears hurt so badly. And it's like nine feet. He's, he's being taken to the very bottom of the ocean. And then it says he's wrapped up in weeds. The seaweed has so entangled him that he can't even get out. What does that feel like? I don't know where I am. I don't know which end is up. I know I'm dying. I know this is the end for me. I don't think he saw the fish coming because he probably can't see anything. But all of a sudden, there's this huge force of the water pushing you around and then stuck in a tight space. And then you open your eyes and you can breathe, but it smells d disgusting. Like, what, what is this like? All we have is that he, he, he knows he's dying. The gulp and deeps, uh, the deep engulfs me. The weeds are wrapped around my head. He knows he's dying. This is it. And that's why he says at the end of verse 6, but <laughs> I know I'm dying but you brought my life up from the pit. There's no way I should have survived this, and yet you saved me. The fish is discipline, but it's also deliverance. You called God, I defied you. You brought distress, I prayed, you delivered. An amazing, staggering grace. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says that all of God's children will be disciplined by him. Like a loving father disciplines his kids. All of God's children will be disciplined. And it's distressful. It's not punishment, but it's distressful. This is just an example of what that discipline looks like. But you, you know who dads don't discipline? Dads don't discipline kids that aren't theirs. 
right? You don't go around looking at your kids and going, you know what, come here. You need a timeout. You need discipline. No, that's for your parents to decide. I discipline my kids. You discipline your kids. I don't discipline your kids. So if you are being disciplined by God, what does that make you? You're a child of God. And Jonah here says, I am at the place of absolute distress. I'm being disciplined. I am going to die. And yet God in his grace has delivered me. He saved me. He brought my life up from the pit. I was running away from you, and you didn't run away from me. You didn't abandon me. Verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. At some point, descending down into the ocean, he must have said, God, help. I'm dying. God, help. My prayer came to you into your holy temple, in your that presence again, that relationship again. God, I want relationship with you. Jonah's trouble produced remembrance. And that itself is grace as well, right? Distress makes you cry out to God. The sailors had told Jonah in the boat, hey, cry out to God. And Jonah said, I don't want to cry out to, to my God. But now in the middle of the ocean, going down to the very bottom, he cries out to God. Trouble brings about remembrance, and that's grace. God gives us tough times to enable us to remember him. Remember the prodigal son, he's eating with the pigs, and he's trying to eat what the pigs can eat. He's unable to eat them because they won't be digested in his stomach. And it's then when he remembers. Remember it says he came to his senses and he remembered how many hired servants my father has and none of them go hungry. It's only then that he remembered the goodness of God. And so I want to plead with you. If you are here this morning and you find yourself in the belly of the fish as it were, or if if you're watching, if you're listening, and you find yourself in the belly of the fish, Your life just is darkness, it's chaos, it's distressing, it's sorrowful. And you're wondering, okay, what do I do at this point? Do what Jonah does. Remember God and cry out for relationship with him. Say, God, you're the only one that can help me. I remember your goodness, and I plead with you to be in a relationship with you. You've kept me alive. Now give me yourself. I want you And that's why he says at the end, my prayer comes to you in your holy temple. I want you, even if I don't live. And it's very interesting. You won't find one aspect of a petition in this prayer. There's nothing in this prayer where Jonah says, can you please, can you please? Jonah's just saying, "Uh, I submit. I, I sinned and I submit now. And God graciously delivers. That leads us to the last aspect of God's grace that we'll see in this prayer. So we've seen the grace of Jonah's distress, the grace of God's rescue and then and deliverance. And, and here, number three, and this is verses eight through 10, through the rest of the chapter, we'll see the grace of God's patience, the grace of God's patience. Jonah says in verse eight, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Some of your translations, if you have ESV, it's gonna be different. This is a very interesting verse in Hebrew to translate. It could mean one of two things. Let me give them to you really quickly. Number one, it could mean those who worship worthless idols forfeit mercy that could be theirs. It forfeits the mercy that could be theirs. They worship idols, and therefore they're not going to be able to be in a relationship with God, which is true, right? They decide, I want to follow idols, and therefore you're saying no to God. You can't serve two masters. So it could be that. If it is that, Jonah may be thinking about the Assyrians. Who knows what he's thinking here at the end of his prayer. But he might be saying, and some commentators say that he's saying this, 
at the end of this prayer, God, thanks for saving me, and I'm going to obey you, not like those Ninevites are doing, not like the Assyrians. They worship idols. I'm going to obey you. And so it's almost this aspect of Jonah doesn't even realize the grace that's being given to him because he's still saying, at least I don't worship idols. Could be that he's saying that. And the reality is, that's not an untrue statement, what Jonah is saying. And I, I think it's, it's not an untrue statement about Jonah himself. We're going to see this in the end of chapter 4. The idol of all idols is the idol of self. My way, not God's way. He sees the literal idols in the Assyrians, but he does not see the idols in his own heart. But this verse could also mean another thing. It could also mean, and I think maybe it probably means this because of the but, right, in verse 9, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run to you and sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. The way that it also could be interpreted is those who cling to worthless idols will eventually abandon them. That's what it could mean. It could mean that Jonah is saying people who follow idols will eventually get to a place where they realize these idols don't do anything for me. Like an idol can't save me in the bottom of an, of an ocean, right? An idol can't swallow me up and save me. An idol can't deliver me or rescue me. So it could mean that Jonah is saying either one, People who worship idols forfeit mercy from God, which is a true statement if you do that for the remainder of your life. If you just follow an idol and give yourself over to an idol, of course you are forfeiting the mercy that could be yours. But it also could mean, and I think it probably means this, at the end of Jonah's prayer, that he's saying, God, you're the one true God. You're the one true God. Those who worship idols would never be able to say what I'm saying right now. They would just forsake them because in tough times, idols don't produce any results. But God, you do. Idols cannot give grace. They cannot save you. They cannot run after you when you run away. And that's why Jonah says, I'm going to sacrifice to you. I'm not running away from you now. I'm going to sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. And then he ends by saying this, salvation is from the Lord. I call these three verses the grace of God's patience. It took a long time for Jonah to get to this place where he says, okay, I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. And not at one point in this story does God say, I'm done with you, man. I'm done with you. I've had it with you. I could call on a thousand other people, and they would have done exactly what I asked. And you, Jonah, keep on saying no. You keep on devising ways to disobey me. Not one point in this story does God say, I'm, I'm done. I've had it. I'm fed up. Enough. He just keeps pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing with a patient grace, a mercy that chases us down, that hunts us down. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his to give. It's his to dispense. This is the whole message of the Bible. It's his, so it's exclusively his. Nobody else can save you. And it's sovereignly his. He's the one who powerfully does it. God's in charge of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jesus' name means. God is the one who brings salvation. Salvation belongs to him. Then verse 10, the Lord commands the fish, so he appoints the fish, and then he commands the fish. You've done your job, man. Spit Jonah back up on dry land, and then go your way. I wonder how the fish thought about that. Probably not fun to vomit him up, but it was probably better than having him in the stomach, punching on his stomach. So on to dry land he goes. 
God releases Jonah from the fish, even though, as it's going to become very obvious very quickly in this book, Jonah's repentance is really only partial. And yet, the merciful God patiently works with us, flawed and clueless though we are. That's why I say this demonstrates God's patience. Demonstrates God's patience. Have you come to a place of repentance the way that Jonah did? Jonah didn't repent perfectly. None of us do. And it's not a one-time event where you say, I repented and I never have to repent again. It's a process. It's ongoing. But Jonah's prayer is one of submission to God in a partial form of repentance. And God says, with patience, with kindness, with rescuing grace, I'll save you. Jonah chapter 2 is the story of every person who's ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jonah chapter 2 is our story. We still need to remember. We still need to confess. We still need to repent. And yet you and I have no ability to change our hearts. You realize we can change almost anything else. If you don't like your hair, you can change it. If you don't like your muscles or lack thereof, in my case, you can change that. Or try to. You have zero ability to change your heart. You have no ability to change your heart. This is why my conversation with my kids, whenever they do things that are sinful, we sit on their bed, we dialogue about this together, and I say, what should you do? And my son will say, I should stop being selfish. And I say, how's that going, man? You said that the last time. Can you stop yourself from being selfish? I'll say, no, only God can do that. Only God can fix your heart. Jonah doesn't need more laws around him. Jonah doesn't need behavior modification. Sin isn't about having a behavioral problem. It's about having a heart problem that produces wrong behavior. We don't need behavior modification. We need heart surgery. Laws won't help Jonah. He doesn't need more moral muscles to just do better. What he needs is grace because only grace is the ability to change our hearts. So easy to look around, even in our culture today, and just say, everybody needs more laws. If we just had more laws, we'd be better people. We need to be better people. It's not laws that we need. It's God's grace that changes our hearts. God's grace changes us from the inside out. So I want to I finish with this. This is from J.I. Packer, who is uh, now with the Lord, and I'm going to let him guide our time in communion. He pulls out three aspects of God's grace, and we see them here in the book of Jonah. And these aspects of God's grace will enable us to see why communion is so beautiful, why we partake of it every month, and why the gospel is so amazing. J.A. Packer says this, Many people talk about God's grace, but it's just an ab abstraction to them. It's not life-changing power. There are several crucial truths which the doctrine of grace presupposes and if they're not acknowledged and they're not felt in one's heart, clear faith in God's grace becomes impossible. We're going to look at only three of them. He gives, I think, seven or eight of them. We'll look at three of them. But notice what he says. If you cannot acknowledge these things and feel them in your heart, then clear faith in God is impossible. Okay, what are the three things? Number one, Jay Packer says, grace involves, it presupposes, moral ill-desert. That's the way he says it, moral ill desert. We could say it this way. We have nothing in us that commends us to God. We have nothing good, moral, right? Goodness, the ability to be moral. Ill desert, undeserving. We have no goodness in us that it makes us deserving of God's grace or his mercy. This is really hard for us to hear in this culture, right? This culture is 
teaches us every day that our biggest problem is we don't have enough self-esteem, right? You just need to think more highly of yourself. So if you say, I have no moral ill desert, I'm not morally deserving of any goodness of God to give to me, the world will say to you, you have a self-esteem problem. You think that way about yourself, you have a self-esteem problem. And if you believe that and you start going down that road, then you'll think, I'm actually not too bad. God's really lucky to have me on his team. It's good that God died for me because I'm awesome. Add to that in our culture, moral relativism. And you have a recipe for people simply declaring, I'm not that bad because moral, morality is relative. It's not that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. As so but Jonah knows that there is divine justice in what he's experiencing, and he knows he deserves it. You will not plead with God for grace if you think, I'm kind of deserving of good, good things from God. I kind of expect him to give me because I'm really not that bad. If you haven't come to a place of moral ill desert, you realize you have nothing. That's why we sang, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I, I come naked. I've got no beautiful clothing to present before the king. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you. That's why we sang over and over again, wash me, Savior, or I die. I can't do anything to fix myself. Number two, J.A. Packer says, grace presupposes spiritual impotence. Spiritual impotence, another way we could say it is we have no power to do anything to save ourselves. We're completely powerless to save ourselves. So we have no ability to earn God's favor. We have no moral deserving of God's grace or his kindness or his favor. And we have no ability to fix that. So we're terribly bad people. We're sinners that cannot do anything to get ourselves to not be sinners. Which, again, in our culture, this is a hard thing to learn because this is America, right? You can pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. You can fix yourself. There's a YouTube channel that tells you how to do anything that you want to do, right? If you have a plumbing issue, just type it. I have a flange that is broken. Help. Enter. And it'll give you 7,000 videos on how to fix your toilet. You can fix n nearly anything. Even me, who knows nothing about cars. I fixed a lot of things on my cars by going to YouTube. But I can't fix my heart or my relationship with God. I I'm powerless to change my morality problem. And Jonah knew this, right? Physically, he knew I'm dying. Spiritually, he knew there's no way. How will I get to the presence of God again? How can I get to God's holy temple? How can I be in a right relationship with God? There's no way I can do it. Thirdly and finally, J.I. Packer says, grace presupposes, receiving grace presupposes, number one, moral ill desert. I don't deserve it. Number two, completely powerless, can't change my heart, can't earn it. Number three, grace presupposes how costly salvation is. If you have the first two, but you don't have the third, you're not going to glory in Jesus. If you say, I am a sinner condemned to die for my sin, and there's no way I can change my heart, there's no way I can be saved, and then you think salvation isn't really that hard. If you think God saving me isn't that big of a deal, then you're going to go, thanks for saving me, God. But you're not going to love Jesus. You're not going to savor him. You're not going to glory in him because you don't realize how costly salvation is. And that is why we partake of communion. We partake of communion to be reminded we are sinful people with no ability to save ourselves, and salvation came to us by the most costly mean possible, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the burial of the Son of God who created the world, and then finally the resurrection of Jesus who is the one who says, I'm giving you a sign of Jonah. I'm giving you a sign. 
Just like Jonah was stuck in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so too the Son of Man will be stuck, not in a fish alive, but in the grave, down in the earth, dead, but will be raised to newness of life. We deserve nothing but condemnation. We are utterly incapable of saving ourselves, and yet God has saved us at great cost through himself. One pastor says it this way. Some people have too high a view of themselves. But God's grace is not stunning because they don't feel that they need it. Or at least they don't need it that much. Others do do indeed see themselves as failures, but while they may have some notion of an abstract God of love, they have little idea of the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice to purchase them out of debt, out of slavery, and out of death. They aren't lost in wonder. They aren't lost in love. They aren't lost in praise at the lengths and the depths to which God has gone for us. The real deliverance in this chapter is not the deliverance from the fish or even from the sea. It's the deliverance from sin. Salvation belongs only to the Lord, and if someone is saved, it is because God did it. It's holy of God. That's the gospel. And that's why we partake of communion. So what I want to do is I want to pray and thank the Lord for the gospel, that God saved us even though we weren't deserving, even though we were powerless to do anything. He said, I will save you. And as I pray, let's get our hearts ready to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we remember through communion. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful for Jesus. And I I pray for those in this room. I pray for those that are watching, that are in the midst of distress, maybe brought about by their own sin, that they would turn to you, that they would not blame you or feel that this is punishment, but they would see it as deliverance. This is discipline that leads to deliverance if they would see it that way. God, please grant the gift of repentance for those in our church, for those that would be watching. And God, as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, God, I pray that we would, in a very real way, walk through each of these three points that J.I. Packer gives, that we would admit we are morally ill-deserving of anything. You don't owe it to us. We've never been good in our lives to a place where you owe it to us to let us into heaven or owe it to us to bless us with something or owe it to us to give us a nice life or a safe life or an easy life. God, we've never done anything that deserves any of that. All that we've done deserves punishment. It deserves penalty. So God, I pray that you would make us feel helpless. May we start there this morning. And then make us feel even more helpless because we look and we see, okay, let's fix this. I've got a problem. I've got a sin problem. Let's fix this. And God, I pray that very quickly we would own up to the fact that we have no ability to fix that problem at all. Oh, we have tried behavior modification for years and it does not work. We need grace. We need transforming grace that changes our hearts so that our actions change. But how will we receive that grace? How will we get that grace? God, bring us to a place in that first point of realizing we're helpless. Then bring us to a place in that second point of realizing, oh, we're even more helpless than we thought. 
Then and only then may we look with eyes of gratitude and, and a disbelief that comes by realizing you have done something that is truly unbelievable. This is amazing. You would pay the cost to change our heart and to give us a clean slate of righteousness so that we could be forgiven, we could be freed, and way more important than that, we could be in a right relationship with you forevermore. God, that's where we need to be in order to celebrate communion, in order to celebrate the gift of the gospel. We need to see our helplessness and then see doubly so our hopelessness and then see at great cost to yourself, you gave your life for us. So Father, give hearts in this room or those that are watching a taste for the goodness of you that they would taste and they would see how costly salvation is. They would taste and they would see that you are good. Then and only then can we rejoice with gratitude as we partake of communion. We give this all to you, Lord. We ask that you would change our hearts and focus our minds on your grace. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. As you came in, you should have seen a little cup that's on your chair we take that first part off we are going to partake of communion together this is for believers only if you are here this morning or if you are watching this morning and you are not a believer in jesus christ you don't know those three aspects of the gospel you've never savored the goodness and the glory of god's grace uh, these elements just let them go they're not for you they're for people that love jesus and want to proclaim his death on their behalf and his resurrection on their behalf but if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these elements are for you to take and to remember the grace that is yours in Jesus. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. In the midst of the Passover, he broke the bread and he passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. I'm going to do the work that you can't do. I'm going to be shattered so that you can be made whole. And then Paul tells us, as often as we partake, we do it remembering what Jesus said. I will be shattered and broken so that you can be made whole. The only people that are going to rejoice in that news is people who come broken and say, I'm not whole. God, make me whole. As often as you do it, do it remembering him. Let's do it with gratitude in our hearts and thankfulness for his sacrifice. After the bread, Jesus took a cup. It was filled with wine. It was the cup that would have been passed around during the Passover. There's four cups that are passed around during the Passover. This is one of the cups. It's a cup of redemption. And Jesus says, this is actually the cup of the new covenant. And he holds it up and he says, this is the new covenant, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. What does the new covenant say? The new covenant says that God's going to change our hearts. He's going to take out our heart of stone. He's going to place in us a heart of flesh that beats for him. And that heart has the law written in its entirety on you. And you want to do what God has told you to do. That's the heart we need, but that's not the heart we have if we're not saved. We have hearts that love sin and hate God. And we need hearts that love God and hate sin. That can now say, I want to do, God, what you want me to do. Jesus says, this cup is that cup. It's the cup of the new covenant. That's my blood being poured out for your sins. My blood to cleanse you. We sing it all the time at our church. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus says, take this cup and drink. And Paul tells us that every time we drink, we are drinking of the new covenant. We are remembering it. 
and we're proclaiming the reality of salvation given to us through his death and his resurrection. The only people who rejoice in Jesus' blood being poured out are the people who say, I have so much sin that needs to be cleansed. Will you cleanse me? And this cup that you hold in your hands is Jesus saying, yeah, I'll cleanse you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's stand together and let's pray as we sing and lift our voices in gratefulness to our Lord. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my Savior And all God's people said, amen. Blessings on the rest of your Lord's Day. Blessings on the uh, rest of your week. And Lord willing, we will see you next Sunday. And Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday out there in live stream internet land. Uh, for welcoming in new members, for uh, baptisms, for uh, Sergio being brought on as an elder, for our picnic outside in fellowship, and for our kickoff for the small groups this semester. We've got a lot going on. Be praying for it. We're excited for all that God's doing here at CBC. God bless you. We love you, and we'll see you next week.